Good evening, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, last week, we started a new series called Turning Points. And what we are doing uh, for the next couple of weeks is we've decided to go through uh, looking at some individual Bible characters. We're kind of jumping around a little bit. And the point of the series is to look at particular moments in Scripture that center around a certain character where kind of everything changed. Uh, talking about moments that really mattered, uh, like a big direction shift happened or something changed. It was, like a, it was a moment that wasn't trivial. And the reason why we're looking at that is because I think this is still very true for us today, where individual moments of choosing faith or fear, of choosing which kingdom we belong to, they're actually, they face us all the time. And I don't know about you, but I, I tend to like to paint everything in a bit of a gray, where most of life is just kind of unimportant. And then, of course, maybe one day there's going to be really important moments, and then I'll have to make sure that I'm filled with faith. And in those really crucial moments, I should probably get it right. I'm not sure that's actually how life works. I think we live by faith all the time. And there's a, there's a, a very famous sort of quote in, in the book of Joshua that says, choose this day whom you will serve. A very sort of immediate implication into, into who does have allegiance of your life? Where does, who is your faith most ultimately in? And that should probably affect every moment, not just the crucial ones, whatever those are. Uh, I think every moment is crucial. And in my opinion, it would be if I was the enemy, if I was the liar, if I was the deceiver, you know what I'd do? I would just try to make every moment seem unimportant. That'd be a great play. I've noticed this, that the, the, the devils in my life, when they try to speak to me, when they're, when they're whispering lies in my ears, it isn't vouching for evil things. It's making everything seem more gray and less important. That's what they sound like to me. They sound like this moment doesn't really matter. Just phone this one in. It, this is not a faith moment. This is just an everyday moment, Jonathan. Don't choose faith here. And so we're going to look at some characters where people either did or didn't do that. And today is one of the times that someone didn't. But the point is still made both ways. Last, uh, last, last week we looked at Abraham. He had a really great moment. We looked at one of his really great moments where he chose to trust God. And we looked how there's this pivotal moment in his life when God chooses to make a covenant with him where his whole life switched from being about like a me-centered thing to a he-centered thing. It's kind of our sticky little statement from last week. That's a big deal to agree to a covenant with God, being like, I think my whole life is about you now. I think this whole journey out of the things that I know, it's all about you now. Big deal. So he shows faith. So today, not so, uh, not so lucky. You can put up that, that first slide. We're looking at a, at a character called Achan. And uh, it's, not, it's not somebody that, you'd, that we talk about a lot. It's kind of a sub-character in the book of Joshua. So if you haven't heard of him, no big deal. But uh, it's, uh, it's kind of a painful story that we have to look at today. Things didn't go so well for Achan. But before we jump into the story, I was reminded of a quote uh, from after last week's sermon, just talking about this whole, you know, do moments matter? The idea that the enemy would want to make everything gray and not important. Uh, probably one of the freakiest quotes that really shaped my life is from a book called uh, The Screw Tape Letters that I read when I was a teenager. It's by C.S. Lewis. And... Uh, this quote, I read it when I was 16 or 17, and it freaked me out in, like, the good kind of way, freaking me out. And this book is it's very genius. If you've read it, you, you'll understand. But uh, C.S. Lewis decided to write this kind of fictional book 
it's a genius concept where it's uh, every single chapter is a letter from a senior demon to like a newbie demon on how to mess with us. And so it's kind of this weirdly inverted, you know, set of advice of like, are you guys reading the quote? Don't read it yet. I'm not ready for you to read it. I'm explaining what it means. It won't make sense. Uh, it's, he's giving inverted, he's giving inverted, good, good, censored. Uh, he's giving inverted advice on how, uh, on how uh, the demons should mess with us. And they're called the patients in the book. We're the patients of the demon. And the enemy of, is, of course, God. But here's the, here's the, here's the, I read that book when I was a teenager, and this one just like really stood out to me, and I think it kind of applies. And now you can put it up there. It says this. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Your affectionate Uncle Screwtape. Doesn't that just like, doesn't your hair stand up in the back of your neck? I'm like, oh, that's my life a lot of the time, maybe. <laughs> just it's not a big deal. And the enemy's main plan is like, shh, it's like the number one plan. Whew. And uh, this is kind of what we get to wrestle with in this turning point series is I think faith would go, nuh-uh. There's a lot of milestones. There's a lot of signposts. There's a lot of turning points. There's a lot of moments to choose faith. And I think gravity pulls us into the direction of being quiet. But faith is this active forward motion that we need to grab hold of. Okay. So, Aiken. Uh, long story. I'm going to paraphrase it for you, and we'll just pull out uh, one essential uh, uh, chunk that we'll actually read. But here's what's going on in the story. We've got uh, Joshua. They've just come um, uh, through the Jordan River. Uh, they're entering into the promised land. The goal is to take over the territory, to, to, to rid the land of all their enemies. And the first big one is Jericho. And it's one of the more famous battles in the book of Joshua. And so you guys maybe know the story, or maybe you've watched Veggie Tales before. But uh, you, you have the, the armies of Israel marching around the city, you know, for seven days, and on the seventh day, they march around it seven times or whatever it is, and then the walls fall down. It's this amazingly miraculous moment where they didn't even have to lift a finger in battle. And God gives some very specific instructions about what they should do upon the destruction of Jericho. And one of the main ones is don't keep any of the devoted things. That means any of the spoils of Jericho, he was very explicit, put those in the Lord's treasury. Don't take them for yourself. It's very, very explicit. This guy named Achan keeps some. And so you can see how this is like this direct violation of this command. And here's what happens. Is that after Achan keeps some, uh, the Lord's presence departs from all of Israel. Because one guy took some silver and some gold and a fancy robe from Babylon. It's very specific about what he took. And... Uh, the Lord's presence departs, and on battle number two, post-Jericho, second battle, it's a disaster. And Israel gets routed out, and many of them die. And Joshua's, you know, tearing his cloak, being like, this was going well, what's going on? And this is where we'll read. Uh, God says this to Joshua, chapter 7, uh, verse 10. Put that up there. Great. The Lord said to Joshua, so he's mourning right now of the loss. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. 
They have stolen, they have lied, they have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. So God gives Joshua some instructions on how to route. He says, you know, tomorrow, have everybody come, all the families of Israel come before me one by one. We're going to find where this thing is. Uh, it's interesting. They say, you know, go consecrate yourself tomorrow because this is going to happen. This big trial is going to happen tomorrow. And it's very interesting that Achan doesn't come forward then. He seemed like he would have had a moment. But he doesn't. So the next day, they go through family by family. When they get to Achan, he confesses that he stole the gold and the silver and his shiny Babylonian coat. And in judgment, he's executed along with his family, his livestock, just like they're wiped out. And then it says the Lord's anger was relented and his presence returns to the people of God. Very Old Testament kind of story. So the turning point in Achan's life is greed, just straight up greed. And it's this decision that turns his life from headed towards a promised land with everybody else to headed towards destruction. They're on the way to the promised land, crazy victorious battle, obvious that God made that happen, the whole Jericho wall falling thing, and he puts some of the stuff in his pocket. It's greed. And what's super interesting about this is that his decision leads to the presence of God departing from all the people around him in a way that actually dramatically affects them all, which is kind of a very anti-Western individualistic thought for us. Going, well, that doesn't sound very fair, God. How does that work? How does, my, how does this person's sin affect everybody else? So before we think this is some you know, extreme Old Testament story, I would just want to read Paul from Ephesians, because he really echoes this, so that we're you know, still living in New Testament land here too. This is Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 says this. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed. Underline that one, because it's kind of what we're talking about today mostly. Because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place. I love that term. But rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one be deceived. Let, let, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. You also see this very communal idea even here in Paul's writing about to not be partners with the greedy, for they don't share in the same inheritance as God's people would. It's like, you see how black and white this is? There's not a lot of room for gray in this scenario. So it seems as though greed and the kingdom of God, the thing that you and I are building here, this little church service, we're actually here to build God's kingdom and to advance it. Uh, greed seems to be diametrically opposed to whatever it is that we're doing here. So here's why. We've got three points. We're gonna look at three things that I think greed that we see greed doing to Achan, and by extension, the people of God here and now. And the first one is this. Greed is a violation of the covenant that God made with people. 
So just to repeat what we read earlier, Israel has sinned. They violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken away some of the devoted things, which they've stolen. They've lied. They've, they've, they've put them with their own possessions. And here's the point here, is that God's covenant that he made with Israel and the covenant that he made with you and I, is he's very explicit that he's the provider. He provides in this covenant. And so it's one way to look at it is, is like, wow, he really doesn't want me to be greedy. The other way to look at it is God is very committed to the idea of him being the provider in this thing that's going on between us and him. He refuses to let any other form of provision make its way into God's people. It's like, no, 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 none of, the, none of those things can, none of the, you can't line your pockets in my kingdom. It's, it's antithetical. It's the opposite of what one of the main components of my covenant is that I provide. Now, we could make a very easy jump on a very long tangent about how uh, the idea that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, and the payment of all that, like he, he's the way, and only he can provide, and only he can atone. Like there's some obvious, like, oh yeah, you really are the provider, aren't you? But then when it comes to greed and money and possessions and things, we go, well, are you? But being a holy covenant-keeping people is inextricably linked with the idea that all provision comes from him. So God gets really angry with Israel when they rely on anything else but him. I think it's amazing how all-encompassing God's leadership of your life and mine is meant to be. It's really all-encompassing. I'm on this kick. I was even just thinking about it here in worship too. I feel like God's doing a very consistent thing in my heart. And it's kind of as a result of this, I don't know, maybe the Acts series and maybe where it would have started. We started talking about God's kingdom in Acts. We did went, you know, however long that was, all summer in that. And it is just very clear that there's two kingdoms. And uh, even in worship, as I was worshiping, being like, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory, yours is the... For in my heart, and maybe in yours too, they're turning less and less, at, uh, they're less and less pleasantries to acknowledge this the cool thing we're building together and more and more stark realities. Uh, and I feel like that's important for us. I don't think this thing was meant to be built as a hobby on the side for any of us. Like we're talking about the kingdom of heaven here and it's been, it's been striking my heart going, what are you building and why? And it's kind of like a very moment to moment decision. It's awkwardly practical. So God's going, I provide, I do. And if you don't want that, you don't share in my inheritance. Oh, that's, that's just very clear. Okay, second thing. So first one, greed's a violation of the covenant. Another thing that greed is, is it makes you liable, apparently, to destruction. It makes you liable to destruction. So how does that work? In verse 12, in the beginning of verse 12, it says, this is why the Israelites can't stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they've been made liable to destruction. Okay, so here's what I, here's what I think's going on here. Greed can be seen as a grip on what, it's a grip onto what is perishable about this world. It's falling backwards and going, oh no, I'm falling and I don't have enough of things. And you'd reach out and you grab onto something that isn't eternal and doesn't last forever and isn't trustworthy. It's a grip on 
what I think the language that Paul would use is perishable things. Aren't perishable things just so tasty, though, sometimes, guys? They're just the best. They're perishable, but they're, like, here, you know? And they taste good, and they, they fill voids that are so obvious, and it's concrete, and it's just your needs get met. It's always immediate, too. It's always just right away it works. And uh, provision is instantaneous when you take it upon yourself. But it's perishable. And so uh, I'll just read 1 Peter 1, 23. I think I have it up there. Yeah, yeah. For you have been, this is Peter speaking, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. There's this idea that when you're born again into the kingdom of heaven, there's something about you that's inherently imperishable now. There's your, all that was in your soul that was gonna die and, 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 and make you, all that's in your soul that was, that was bound for destruction has actually been, you've been willing, you've willingly placed that at the feet of the cross being, I want no part of this world anymore. I'm gonna take up my cross and follow you, Jesus. I'm gonna crucify my flesh is another term that's used. And so we, we put to death willingly all of the perishable things. And instead, the living and enduring word of God becomes the things that we go, no, that. And being a kingdom people is being a people who's very reliant on promises in scripture. Being a kingdom people is being very, very like everyday sort of reliant on imperishable things, which typically aren't objects and concrete things. Imperishable things are things like God's word, God's promise, like his words. His words. That's an, his words are imperishable and they never return void and he never fails. Now you start to see like, hey, let's live lives of faith. We say that all the time. I'm like, oh, you mean like my sustenance and my fallback thing and the thing that I grab on are the words of God, the living and enduring words of him? Oh, oh, that's real practical. <laughs> I don't often grab for that. Uh, this, I think it's interesting that, that, the, that, this, that the verse mentions what Achan steals, and it, it, he steals a Babylonian coat. And you kind of just, you know, skim past that. They're like, okay, cool, interesting fact. Uh, I think it's in there on purpose. The idea, like Babylon, is what is used in all of the Old Testament and the New Testament as kind of just this archetype for people that build their own kingdoms. We got the Tower of Babel, it's kind of where it started. And it becomes this representation of people trying to do their own thing and to be their own gods and get there themselves. And so it's actually kind of poetic that what catches this guy's eye is an, a relic of Babylon. He's on his way to the promised land by miraculous power, and he decides to bring an artifact from Babylon along. And I feel like God, kind of knowing the end, probably, of the story where they actually wind up in Babylon because they don't trust him in the promised land, he's going, I feel like if he was like, already? Already? Already we're doing the Babylon thing. Like, you can start to resonate with God's fury of going, mm, I'm the provider, and you're already bringing Babylonian artifacts that are, I guess, worth something to you into the promised land that I'm supposed to be in charge of. So I have kind of a question for you is, what uh, Babylonian artifacts are you tempted to bring into the kingdom of heaven with you? 
What, what, do you, what do you want to bring along? What are you lining your pockets with? We talked a couple weeks ago at the, at the Vision Sunday about, like, we got to live lives of faith, and unfortunately slash fortunately, that sentence has implications into we used time, treasures, and talents. It's a lot of who we are. We've got time, super precious resource. We've got treasures, our money, our finances, our resource, super precious resource. And we've got talents, also really big deal. God's made you in like a particular way and you add something very unique to the body of Christ that only you add. These are precious things. And so, you know, we don't think about it so much as gold and coats. But I, when I think about what I want to bring along, is like, okay, but some of my treasure is mine. Some of my treasure is mine. Some of my time is mine. Some of my talent is mine. And until you say that out loud, it's like, oh, that, I totally do that. Do I give my best talent to the kingdom? Do I give my best time to the kingdom? Do I give my first fruits to the kingdom? Or have I lined my pockets? The first fruits principle is really essential because it shows you where your allegiance is. Because it doesn't make sense to give your first fruits. You should give what's left over. It doesn't make sense to, to, to put all the church things in your calendar first. That's, that's silly. You should see if you have time. It doesn't make sense to see if you can volunteer or serve on a ministry team. You should probably make sure that you have your job done first and then see if you can serve. Now, I know volunteering at church and a ministry team is not all that it is to, be, uh, to, be, uh, to give your time. We make disciples. We invite people into our homes. We have international dinners. We go hand out donuts. I don't know what it is. It takes time. What do you, what, what's the first, first, first fruits principle? How's that working in all three of those areas? Interesting. And so God says, when you take over the city, when Jericho falls, because I made it fall, when I, when, when I conquer ground in your heart, when I provide the means of salvation for you, when the walls of your heart fall by means of grace, and then you're free to go to now be in the promised land, as it were. Sorry, the metaphors work quite well between salvation and entering the promised land. When you find time, treasures, and talents in the rubble, those are mine. When you find them, put them in my treasury. Don't take the devoted things. Interesting word, hey? Don't take the devoted things for yourself. Give them to me. Don't bury them in your tent. Bring them to God. And I think he says that because these things have the potential to build God's kingdom in an incredible way. They also have the potential to rob us of God's presence and rob us of us relying on him. That Ephesians verse says, no greedy person has inheritance in the kingdom, the kingdom of Christ and of God. So it's... Uh, they become idols very quickly. There's one more thing that greed does. This is the one that's the hardest for me to understand, but we'll try. Greed consumes those around you. Uh, this sin's effects go beyond the sinner in this story. They affect all of Israel. They affect the army that goes out to the next battle. And greed is one of those sins that feels very private, doesn't it? You know, no one's gonna know about what your first fruits are. No one's going to ask you, unless you've invited some person that's discipling you into a very close relationship, uh, which you should. Uh, it's very easy to keep that kind of thing hidden, the idea of greed and lining your pockets. And so I think there's something about, you know, those things. That's, there's such a thing as discretion 
you know, it's, you know, money's kind of a private thing. We all know that. Just, there's wisdom and discretion, absolutely. Also, when does discretion fall off the cliff into just hiding because we don't want to <laughs> wrestle through what's going on there? And I'm not sure that when it comes to our resources, it's a, uh, we have, a, I think, a privacy around all that stuff that's probably more cultural than it is biblical. Like, you look at early church, they're just selling stuff and doing really awkward things like laying them at the apostles' feet. That's weirdly public and obvious. And I don't know what that would look like here, suitcases full of money. It's like, what is, this is, you should have more discretion than that. That is unwise. Do not do that. Like, that would be very awkward to be, to be that public about our resources, but I think greed deprives those around you. It deprives those around you. It, you have a lot to offer in talent and in time and in treasure. There is a lot to be given by all of us. And it's actually how God wants to, wants to, wants to advance his kingdom. Because the kingdom is built through this thing called stewardship. And I think this is a word I've misunderstood. You know, he gives us all these things and he says steward them. Now what I... When I hear the word steward, sometimes that word is used in such a way where it's like, hey, you should be really responsible with all that, and you should make sure you totally understand how it all works. There's an element of stewardship of that, that, that's definitely that. But a better definition of stewardship is that it's not yours. <laughs> you're, you're acting on somebody else's behalf in the way they would have. Best metaphor for this, Lord of the Rings. Uh, Denethor, the steward of Gondor, Sounds so nerdy when you say that, hey? Denethor, son of Ecthelion, steward of Gondor. Uh, I heard Tim's laugh. Yeah, that was for you, buddy. Um, he, if you've seen the movie, he's supposed to be holding on to the throne for the rightful king to come. And he doesn't. He thinks it's his. He's not steward of Gondor. He wanted to be the king of Gondor, but not the rightful one. It didn't go so well. So I think when we entrust God with our resources, the people, are not only, uh, people around us are not only consumed by our greed and deprived by our greed, but the Spirit distributes and multiplies. And this is what I think is, uh, this, is what I, this is kind of what we just want to land on. As I think the reason why God wants to ha have it is because when, when we're stewards of his stuff, uh, he, he distributes it, but he distributes it distributes it in such a way where it becomes way more than if we would have used it. He multiplies it. Because I think every single advancement of the kingdom of God is a miracle. Every single time another brick is built in the kingdom of God that's eternal, that's a miracle to me, and I can't really do that. Which means that every time we wanna build God's kingdom with our resources, it actually has to be him doing it. We actually just have to be stewards because it needs to be multiplied into something miraculous. It needs to be taken and making it into something so much more than I could have ever done with my own, even with good intentions. So what you could get from a message like this is like, you know, being greedy is bad. It's like, okay, I guess that's part of the message. But here's what I get from this. This is what I was just trying to soak in today. Yeah, it's like, yeah, greed's bad. We made some points. Everybody knows that already. What I get from this passage is that God takes really seriously the idea of providing for his people and for his kingdom. 
That's what I see from this story. He's very serious about being the sole provider in your life at a trust-based level. He takes that very seriously. I feel like he would say, I wrote some first person in, in, in God's first person. This is not scripture. This is me pretending I know what God's saying out loud. The construction of my kingdom requires miraculous multiplication. And I can only multiply what's mine. And I have an inheritance for you. Like I have an inheritance for you that's way bigger than anything you could line your pockets with. And I'm gonna multiply this stuff. So I think a greedy heart like mine could be offended by being told that, you know, our decisions about resources in such a micro way matter so much. It's like, oh, come on, get off my back. Like, let's, uh, how important really is this? Surely this is extreme. Surely this is an extreme way of thinking. But I, bring, I just bring us back to the kind of this very beginning where we kind of, the tone we set is that the enemy's goal is to make every moment seem unimportant. Every moment is unimportant. How you prioritize things is unimportant. It's, it's not important. Just wait for the really important moments. Get those ones right. I'm not sure that's how the life of faith works. It's beautifully unremarkable. And the unremarkableness is what makes it so powerful. It's not some hype session. It's constant faithfulness. It's beautiful. I think a faith-filled heart lives as if every moment were important. Like heaven could touch earth right now. Right now it could, by the decision that I make. God's kingdom could advance miraculously because I chose to trust in his, resource, his resources, not mine right now. Like that decision. That's so invigorating to me. You know, aren't most sermons really just kind of, I, I feel like this way too, where I take away, I was like, what are the wrong things I should stop doing? Right? Okay, yeah. Those are good. Those are helpful sometimes. I think today is more about what are the opportunities I could start doing? What are the moments of faith I could choose today? What are the oodles of moments that are about my time, treasures, and talents, which is most moments? How do I put God as the provider of those things? And it probably looks something like first fruits. It probably looks like going, I'm not gonna provide. I'm gonna let you provide. And I can't, it would take a long time to go through every example in your life about what that actually looks like. But I think God wants to multiply stuff. And this is what I just wanna end with. I wanna come, I wanna come to just bring us to that uh, feeding of the 5,000 moment, which is one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. And uh, it's a multiplication, right? It's a great multiplication story. But here's what I, I, I think a little bit of my imagination is going on with the story, so I do apologize, but it's, it's feasible. But I, uh, I just, I picture the disciples working through the, you know, Jesus says, go see what we have to feed all these people, right? He says, go see Go see what we have out there. And I can imagine the disciples fanning out, looking for food. They, oh, you know, those 5,000 people had been in that field all day. No one's baked bread. There's no fridges. There's no food to go find. Like, it's a, it's a dire situation. Everyone's just kind of fixated on Jesus. And uh, I think they know this is going to be a dubious sort of proposition to go fan out and find food. They, they find a kid who's got five loaves and whatever it is, two fish. Five, yeah. So... And I bet you, I, I could imagine them all kind of coming back into a huddle of going like, did you find anything? Did you find anything? It's like, no, I found this one kid who's got like, you know, a lunch. And, uh, but, but I, I'm always impressed that they went to Jesus with it. 
You know, because Jesus told them, he actually literally, we should have read the story, but he actually literally says, you go feed them. You go feed them. Go see. (laughs) And they go, whoa, fan out. Go find food. And they come back with a lunch. And they actually decide to go through with the plan of being like, well, I guess we'll just go show Jesus what we found. And I feel like Jesus just says, perfect. Right, spread it out, cut it up. And I, I love to put myself in that story. You know, I know I made some of those scenarios up. It's the chosen version of the feeding the 5,000. But um, the point is still well made of going, we have what feels like five loaves and a couple of fish, and it feels like a lunch. And then we look and go, wow, I have to build God's kingdom. And I feel like we come to him and go, this is what I have. This is what I have. And he goes, perfect, perfect. Watch me multiply that, because I'm actually building my kingdom. You're just the steward of the lunch. And I just feel like I got lunch. I just have lunch in my pocket. And um, some days I feel like I need lunch. I need that lunch to be mine. And that boy goes, give this to Jesus. And the disciples go, all right, let's give it to Jesus. And there's this faith-filled moment, and God goes, perfect. Watch me feed everybody. And this is a beautiful beautiful picture of the kingdom of heaven. And so we look at Achan's story, and a turning point in his life is when he chooses greed and lining his own pockets to build his own little kingdom because he's not quite sure whether this whole promised land adventure is going to pan out. I think the promised land adventure is going to pan out for you and me. I think it's going to pan out. And so we get to live every day as if it is. And what an adventure. And it's costly, and there's gaps, and we learn how to fall back on the living and enduring word of God instead of what we can see. And it's a life of faith, and there's big gaps sometimes. And then he meets us there, and we get discipled and chiseled and grafted into the kingdom, and we could go on. I think being greedy is boring. Being greedy is boring. Makes too much sense. Only my kingdom gets built. Greed is boring. You can get a lot, by the way. Yachts look fun. Looks boring. The kingdom of heaven that's on its way to conquer the world and rid it of all evil without getting rid of you and me. You can keep your yacht. I want to be part of that story. Father, thank you that your plan is good and that your promises are worth holding on to and that your plan is working out and you have brought us into the promised land and you are miraculously making a way. And so, Father, any greed here, we just say we want no part in it. Any sort of grasping for Babylonian artifacts, things that are reminiscent of people who are grasping at straws, grasping at the perishable, God, we forsake those things, and instead, anything that we find that we think could be used for you, we bring it to you and say, use it. Build something that lasts. Build something that's eternal. Build something that's imperishable. Use me. Use my life. And Father, I pray that you would multiply our resources in this place. Would you multiply our resources in this family? But not because we got smart, but because we were filled with faith. Lord, I don't know how that works, and I think that's the point. So, Father, may we be a people that has faith. Think about the people marching around Jericho's wall. It's absolutely nonsensical. Father, 
Help us be a people that follow you and watch miracles happen. What are we if we're not a people of miracles? What are we if we're not a people of faith? What are we if we're not a people following a living God? What are we? We're nothing. So Father, would you reclaim allegiance, first primary allegiance of our hearts? Thank you that we get to belong to an eternal kingdom. What a joy. What an adventure. Fill us with faith as we worship you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand?